to another instalment of the Evolution Exchange USA podcast. My name is Chris Hopkins, and I am the Vice President of the Evolution USA business and your host for today. Today, I'm joined by an amazing panel to discuss the topic of how to create and maintain team culture. Before we delve deeper into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. Jeff, do you want to kick us off? Sure thing. Uh, Jeff Gabriel, um, SVP of Engineering for Data Robot, uh, where I oversee the um, application development side. I guess I would say all of the customer-facing uh, application development. Um, and uh, as far as something I'm passionate about, I know it's a bit of a geeky answer, but I'm passionate about <clears throat> building great software. Uh, it's, it's genuinely what I uh, have always liked as, as a hobby uh, as well, uh, obviously professionally. So that's worked out fairly well. Perfect. Thanks for that, Jeff. Um, over to you, Todd. Todd Koska, VP of Engineering at Everbridge. Um, I'm responsible for a chunk of our application development across the stack um, and uh, across continents. Um, passionate about, um, I guess we may end up having similar answers. Um, I enjoy having satisfied customers um, and I like software, building software, and I like helping organizations grow. Um, for me, I think how we work, the culture translates into how well we build software and how satisfied customers are. So looking forward to talking today. Perfect. Thank you very much, Todd. Um, Anuja, on to yourself. Sure. Um, Anuja Gokhale, I'm the Senior Director of Engineering at Payscale. Um, again, I think we are all, all probably have similar passions, which is why we are all here. Um, definitely, you know, uh, highly passionate about building great software, but also you know, building things that both simply work and work simply. Um, I also believe, you know, um, the other uh, teams that are the most engaged build the best software, right? Because because you have skin in the game, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and lastly, over to you, Sean. Uh, hi, uh, Sean Kelly. I'm a senior engineering manager at Clavio, uh, and I oversee uh, the application security team and also a team that's in charge of our billing infrastructure and then uh, growing up a, a new team right now around account uh, metadata and management there. Um, and I would agree, I think, largely with uh, all the passions that everybody has here. And if uh, I can largely add one more of my own, um, I'm really passionate and uh, inspired by helping people and trying to make a difference in the folks around me. Um, so, yeah. Brilliant. Thanks very much for introducing yourselves, guys. Let's move on to the topic that we're going to discuss today. Um, you've all put forward a question or a statement on how to create and maintain team culture. As usual, I'll work around the room asking each of you to pose your question and then the reasons behind it to give some context and then we'll all have the opportunity to take the conversation from there. So again, we'll, we'll start with Jeff. So your question was, how do you incorporate mid or large acquisitions into your culture while embracing the new teammates? So the floor is yours. Do you want to, as I said, add some context to that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one of the things that, that drives the question for me is obviously, first of all, the experiences of going through multiple acquisitions. And um, you know, while all great companies uh, to acquire and great people coming on board, not all have the same sort of quality in terms of the ability um, to, to bring the teams in and, and be as effective as possible um, at transmitting culture or, or 
um, even modifying our own culture uh, in certain ways and looking for um, thoughts on uh, how how to do that best. I think a number of people mentioned that they've been through quite a few, so I think that's also uh, could be very interesting here. But there are a couple of forces at play. One is I think one of my experiences is that the faster you incorporate a team into the work uh, of the you know the acquiring company, the better. Uh, but doing that at speed um, runs into culture differences. So, for instance, you know, you, uh, your acquiring culture may be that uh, if you're if it's between eight and five, you're available on Slack and you're answering quickly. Um, you know, and that's how we communicate, and that's sort of our water cooler, if you will. They may seem like an annoyance to an acquired company. There are just lots of little things like that, and so trying to move at speed. Uh, to get people integrated can run headlong into those things. I think, too, we've seen um, in a number of cases where not only do we want to transmit that culture, there are things uh, in the culture that we want to, to bring on board um, and, and help people to feel as, as comfortable, uh, as, as safe as possible, and trust takes time. So I think that's one of the other things as well as you, you want people to trust you, but say a PR review seems cruel coming from somebody you don't trust. Uh, whereas over time, uh, you know, that may be okay. And maybe PR reviews aren't how you used to work, um, but now they are. So uh, I want to over talk the context, but that's sort of where my mind is at uh, on those things. Um, and yeah, maybe maybe it would be great to, to hear from people first before I continue pontificating. So. <laughs> well, thanks very much for that, Jeff. Um, as you highlighted, I think multiple people in the room have gone through acquisitions themselves and be part, been part of that process. So who would like to kind of pick up the baton and, and follow up on what Jeff's uh, started uh, talking about already? Sean, brilliant. Over, over to you. Um, yeah, let me remember to lower my hand before I forget. There we go. Um, yeah, so I had the experience of being in a, a, a smaller company. We were maybe 15 to 20, which included sales and uh, senior leadership and that sort of thing. We got acquired by a much, much larger company, uh, bigger than any company I'd ever worked at prior. Uh, so we were like a group of you know 20 folks who existed in this very small, cramped office space. Um, there was one dedicated office room, and it was basically the sales pit. Um, and then everybody else sat on what were effectively like uh, picnic tables um, in a large, large in quotes, open area. Um, and we had a we had a pretty particular, you know, startupy, joking around, being kind of loud and you know, hooting and hollering sometimes during the day kind of culture. And we got acquired into a really large company which had a, a big engineering footprint and presence. Um, and it wasn't as though the engineering team there wasn't as let's say you know like joking around as we could be. Um, but like one of the initial culture clashes that we ran into was we were much, I would say, uh, louder and a little bit more talkative during the day than their engineers were used to. And so it actually took a little bit of time before, you know, we kind of renormalized that, you know, maybe we shouldn't be shouting, you know, friendly enough as we were to and at one another in the middle of the office like we were used to. Uh, and the other engineers around there eventually got used to the fact that, um, you know, it was going to be a little bit louder, a little bit busier, a little bit noisier. And so there were just some, you know, headphones on, you know, work from different areas of the office. We eventually over time just kind of settled into the, these more normalized routines. 
Um, you had a really interesting point around how quickly you bring the new team into the work. And we had a really interesting story around this because when we got acquired, we had a lot of existing customers and we had an existing piece of software. And the idea was that we were going to take that software, which was on premise, um, which, you know, in security context, anyway, there's still a lot of security software that gets written to run on prem. Uh, and we were going to start moving that into the cloud. And so there was this really, you know, not super lengthy, but it was over the process of about a year transition period where I had to maintain the old software had to start rebuilding it into the, you know, the cloud offering of this larger company. And there was a lot of friction between the way that we were used to working, which was like, get everybody in a room, argue it out for two hours, leave aligned, you know, basically everybody knows what they need to do there to this, you know, uh, 1500 person company where decisions really did move at the speed of business, so to speak, uh, you know, getting a decision on what the website needed to look like, the marketing changes, certain features and functionality that we needed to ship, certain cross product functionalities that we needed took weeks and months as opposed to what we were used to, which was like, again, just get in a room and argue it down until everybody's on the same page. And so we had a really slow roll into their culture because the timeline for the project was largely over a year. And by the end of it, we were, I would say like, if you think about it in terms of like tempering, like when you're baking, you don't immediately dump everything together. Sometimes you have to kind of like fold it in in pieces and over time, um, over that period of time, we got fairly well acclimated to the new culture. And I'd like to think that we had some positive influences on the culture as well. So it wasn't like we just got assimilated. Uh, we also tried to influence the culture as well in the ways that we thought worked pretty well. Um, and you know, generally, I think most people had a pretty a positive outcome from that. And we got a lot of really good experience kind of like learning from the people who were there, but also show, showcasing to some of the engineers, for example, that like there are other ways and, and different ways to go about building and running teams and planning software out. And it doesn't have to necessarily be exactly as you guys have done it in the past. And it doesn't always have to be, to be honest, you know, it was kind of like rough and loose as we had been doing it as well. Um, so largely I had a really positive experience, but it, it did take a bit of time before it was kind of like fully finished. Jeff, um, do you want to yeah, pick up on that? Uh, yep. Just like to pick on one, one thing there from a question standpoint, what do you think made it um, feel comfortable for you to bring up those things that you wanted to transmit into the culture? Because to me, that sounds like an important part of your experience there is that it was okay for you to give feedback and, and move towards the group a little bit. Yeah. Because that to me is also sort of part of belonging and, and uh, coming up to speed with the team. Do you think there were things that were done to, to make that say more yeah. possible or, or seem possible? Yeah, great question. Um, I would say if I could answer that in brief, a lot of that boils down to the existing leadership at that company who was willing to take our feedback and who was willing to listen to us and who was willing to be honest about, hey, we acquired this company not just for the customers and not just for the technology, but also the people and the way that they work and the ideas that they have. And so we had a lot of support from very specific members of more senior leadership who were like, look, this isn't just a play to you know build this new product. It's also to help grow our culture as well. And so I think without that support, it did nothing, you know, positive would have come from it. Um, so I would say like, if there's one big takeaway from that, it would be like leadership really does have to support the idea of our culture right now is, you know, it is what it is. It's good or bad. It can always be better. And there's always ways to grow and change it. And we're open to that feedback. Brilliant. Um, Anuja? Yeah, I think I just wanted to pick up on like something you said, uh, Jeff, where you said, you know, for obvious reasons, you want to try and uh, to integrate or assimilate as quickly as you can into um, the the like, larger organizations or or the acquiring organizations culture, right? 
And I think there's the the culture word here is slightly loaded, right? Uh, culture can mean a lot of different things, and I think you know I see it more as really like differentiating between that part of your like culture that is core or or like pivotal to your like broader org versus you know everything else that's like peripheral, right? And I think you like want to try and get you know the alignment with the core culture, those things that that you both combine define as that core piece as quickly as possible. But then I think you know all the other like peripheral ones. I'm not convinced they exactly have to be the same, right? And a large portion of that really depends on what are the those differences between your like peripheral cultures. Um, are those harmful to your like broader org? So, for example, in like some cases, we're talking about, hey, you know, maybe you're delivering faster. Maybe like one team is doing DevOps versus one is doing, um, you know, a, a more like centralized thing. There's, there's a like, difference between how some of those teams work, and I think you know when you're when you are either the acquirer or the acquiree, you know, you want to be like, careful of like trying to force all of that at one point because I think like most people want to buy into the culture and and like really addressing it more from you know an employee kind of like value like proposition, right? What do I get if I like move to that culture? I think people like tend to like sign on more if they can see the value behind it. So I think I I like tend to like differentiate between. We don't all have to be on the same page on absolutely everything um, fairly soon because I think that's where you start to see you know people either. Um, you know, see, like you see people either not trust you or people really try to push back because they see a lot of change being forced on them and they're not seeing the value behind it, right? So, uh, so to me, there's a, there's, you know, there's a difference. And, and like you said, really like keeping, you know, like building or really like busting those like horizontal like communications blocks that you might have so that teams across those cultures can also start to do more of this informal um, the communication, whether it's through Slack channels, through groups, through ERGs, so whatever. So that's, some of it is also done ground up as opposed to just a top-down force on what that culture should be. Uh, yeah, I love it. That's an excellent distinction um, in terms of you know what's necessary and important. I, I think it lines up in part two with one thing I was thinking, which is those things which are um, uh, sort of written down and um, can be transmitted uh, educationally versus those things that have to be sort of absorbed. Um, and, and uh, you know, Sean was talking about learning that the team was was a bit quieter. Well, that's probably not in a document somewhere, um, you know, but the, the way that you uh, transmit the software into to staging or production might be written down and, and then all the things that go along with that. And I think it, it it mixes with that idea, like let's figure out what's important, and the other things will transmit, um, you know, over time uh, and build trust first. Love it. Brilliant. Um, Todd, what are, what are your thoughts on the topic? I mean, I think some some similar, but I think some and I think it's worth worth calling out. I, I like a lot of what's been said. I think um, for me, in looking at acquisitions, what's critical is to have. There's two two points. I think one is to have discussions up front when you talk about like moving quicker or work environments. To me, when you're looking at you know, a leader and the acquiring and the acquired company getting together and talk and saying, these are the types of changes we'd like to make. These are the adjustments we'd like to have. This is the direction we'd like to go in. And I think laying that out to see what are the potential you know, speed bumps ahead of time and getting, I'll say, agreement and buy-in in the sense that, oh, does this work? Do you think it should be different? So that then you can work collectively at creating the right team, sort of one team. And I think that's the second part, which I've heard heard a lot, but I think it's it really comes back to bite you at times because, and so I think it's really important to emphasize is that no, it's not 
often I'll see an acquire the company doing the acquisition, they'll have the discussions among their senior folks and decide what needs to happen and decide, oh, this change and we're going to do this and that, as opposed to, okay, some of that is natural, but let's have a collective inclusive discussion. And so we can bring, find out what the strengths are overall. And I like, Sean, how you put it, where it was like, no, the atmosphere was that our opinion was valued and we were bringing things of value. And so to me, whether you can identify, look, this company we're acquiring does X grade and we explicitly want you to teach us. I mean, sometimes you can't do that just because it, it isn't there. There isn't something obvious like that. You don't want to make it up, but then it's the attitude you want to take that, hey, we're not perfect. We're working to get better. Our, we, you know, our weaknesses are here. Our strengths are here. And any way you can help us improve either is good. Um, so I think that includes those two, I think, things like, you know, ha talking ahead of time and then an inclusive approach really goes a long way because I've had to dig out of holes at times in different situations. Um, so I think it can be helpful. Brilliant. Um, Sean? Yeah, just real quick on to us. Like, I agree with everything that you just said. On top of that, I would add, I find that it's often very helpful to frame those kind of conversations about a thing we're changing culturally or even process-wise. What is the problem that we're trying to tackle here? Like, what is the thing that isn't, that's suboptimal or not producing the result that we want? Let's have an honest, to your point, like upfront, inclusive discussion about how, how big of a pain that is. What are ways we could solve it? Hey, here's one idea that we're thinking of leading with. Are there others? Are there other ways we could solve this that work for people? Do people even see the same problem that we are seeing at a certain lens? And if not, why, why might that be? So yeah, love everything you just said. I love to think about these in terms of like, what problems are we facing? And that's why we're making changes. If we're just making changes to make changes, we're almost surely just going to damage the process, the culture, the people, et cetera. And, uh, agreed. And I don't think, you know, Jeff, to your opening question, I don't think you can actually go too quickly in getting the teams work, working together. I think you can go recklessly. And I think too quickly could mean interrupting another roadmap that shouldn't be interrupted. But from a culture standpoint, to me, you want to, everyone expects change when you do an acquisition. So take advantage of that. And to me, when it gets delayed, it actually causes frustration and isolation on the part of the company that's being acquired. They generally want to, they know something's coming, so they want to face it and, you know, okay, let's go. Let's be a part of something. Yeah, thoroughly agree. I think the, the speed is the thing that I've certainly noticed people do want and things go better. Um, and then, yes, how to bring culture into that speed so that it's not, uh, you know, disruptive or, or Problematic, And I think one of the things we're landing on here is both the collaborative nature of it. There's an intentionality about that collaboration. And then there's also, as you, as you pointed out, Anuja, a focus on what matters, um, you know, rather than everything, um, which I think are, are great answers around this. Yeah, absolutely. I think the... Um... Picking up on the, on themes, I think that the communication or open communication as, aspects, you know, to and from on, on both sides is going to be integral to to things moving forward positively. Um, you know, I think that um, that openness needs to be there because, in theory, as you as you said earlier, you know, each company is going to have strengths and weaknesses. So if you can leverage off each other's strengths and and help each other develop those weaknesses. Um, it should be a positive experience all around. Um, uh, Todd, you had your hand raised. Yeah, I just I, I was going to um, just a, a little um, one other, I think, relevant, a little bit orthogonal to what's been discussed so far. So I don't know, Sean, if you were if I'm going to take it off track, I'll let you go first. I, I appreciate the opportunity. I was simply going to chime in and say we we're talking about communication. 
I often tell my engineers the literal most important skill that you will be judged on and that will help you advance in your career and as a better team member is your communication skills, written, verbal, et cetera. Your, your technical skills, they're going to improve no matter what because you're literally doing technical work every day at a different pace than others maybe. Your communication skills are what you really always have to be working on and investing in and it pays big dividends. I, I, I think that's I think that's great. I think that's right. It's always a good message I, I find. Um, so I was going to mention, I think it can be really helpful as an engineering leader to understand why the acquisition is being done, because that changes to me the nature of the integration, because you can get an acquisition for revenue where the plan is to migrate the customers to your existing product and decommission that product. And so that's, a, and to me, it's, it's good to have generally as a general rule, meaning sometimes there are exceptions, but it's good to have the frank discussion with the team being acquired, say, hey, this is the plan and this is how, you know, we want you to work on this for X period of time and then here's where we see your future. So you can be upfront with, to me, what the situation is. Um, it could be a new product or other, other reasons to acquire and to me that drives the work. And so it's important, sometimes you don't know that reason, but I think it's a really good question to ask so you understand what the future looks like so you can help that that team you're now working with absolutely um jeff this was your your topic are you are you kind of pleased with the um the content so far have you got anything else on, on your side that you want to to add no i think this is this is really good discussion and i think um again that communication uh collaboration and, and being very intentional, which goes to the last thing Todd said, um, you know, I, I look back over the multiple acquisitions that we've done um, in the last several years, and we're always very intentional about what we want um, from the software um, and very intentional about understanding the people, but I think have not always taken an intentional approach to um, the overall culture integration. And so I, I really like this conversation and think it's a great answer. Appreciate the uh, thoughts. Absolutely. Thanks very much, guys. Um, let's move on to the second subtopic of today, which is Todd's. Um, you were asking, how do you go about changing the culture within your organization? So again, do you want to just uh, set some context around that for, for everybody, please? Sure, sure. So um, yeah, at Everbridge today, we're moving to more of a, I'll say a DevOps model where engineers are responsible for the for production. Um, for the full, I'll say full life cycle responsibility, we're global. And that to me, some implications there that are important, different of our groups have different views of risk and different views of how to deal with risk and how to deal with change, I'll say. Um, and this gets obviously more sensitive when you get engineers moving to a, some to production responsibilities they haven't had before. And then two, we also have like different, and you look at that different infrastructure capabilities, home capabilities, um, maybe not have as reliable internet connections at homes, this and that. Um, and then our product, we're in critical event management, so it's life safety. And so it means you can't make a mistake, which not really the case, but I mean, there's some mistakes you can make, but other mistakes you can't make. And so the stakes could be, are, are higher, higher than average, I'll say. Um, and so, you know, there's other complexities, I think, that get involved from like software architecture and how that works. Um, you know, whether it's a monolithic or microservice architectures and things related to that have impacts. And we're, we run the gamut in terms of technology and I'll say the state of the architecture we have in different places, um, which is natural for a company of our size. Um, I'll give a little bit, you know, of my take with this and then I wanna hear what all of you have to say. You know, for me, I think with changes, it's important to put them in context 
because these aren't, for instance, the only change being made or the only, you know, the only, we're going to have multiple steps in, in anything, you know, the only thing going on. So for me, one of the philosophical, some of the statements I make often and we make as an organization is we do look at, I'll say, whole product ownership from engineering, not that they have product responsibilities, but they understand customer requirements all the way through operational responsibilities. And then two, that silos are inefficient. And so we look to give these, and we've had teams talk about you know, these challenges. So for me, part of making changes isn't that day one, you say, hey, this is what we're doing, but it fits in with a larger context and direction you're going in. Um, so it seems a bit more natural in that way. Um, that's my initial take, but love to hear what everyone else has to say. Brilliant. Thanks for setting the scene, Todd. That's great. Um, Anuja, we'll start with you this time around. <laughs> so I think you made an important point, right? And I think I would also like put that as really being able to match your like strategy or like vision to your culture, like why you want your culture to be that way, right? Whether you know, like you said, it's a like life-saving thing, or it's hey, it's a healthcare, and you really like want you to like respond quickly. Really, really like tying in why you want those behaviors to change. You know, as opposed to saying hey, we just want to move to DevOps. Like I think you need to know like why, or you or you need to have like production support. What's the value and and what's the cost, right? I think that's a super important thing that we don't always do or always do well, and that's where a lot of pushback comes in. But I think even beyond that, I think you know, um, there is. There is fatigue, right? After a while, so really like focusing on some some few like critical behaviors that you want to change first, and then being able to to uh, to celebrate those small victories, then move on to the next. I think when you try and push a like lot of changes on teams, even if they are for very good reasons, it it can get really overwhelming, and and that's where you also start seeing teams not want to be a part of it, or they don't know how to be a part of it, and for a like bunch of things like you know. Or the one that you're talking about, I think it really is a mix of you know having people like tying to what's in the future, but also looking at what you have in your existing culture that you want to honor, right? Like what are your strengths in your existing culture that you want to keep, and how do you tie those into how people can move to the next thing? Whether it's training, maybe you know your team is great at communicating and training. Well, how do you keep that strength? How do you highlight it now? How do you incorporate that into the new things you want to change? So, so really doing both. But I think you know, like most things, you want to keep measuring, right? Are you in the like right direction? Because you know, we all make plans, and then there's the other things, right? There's other clients, and there's everything else, and and things go sideways sometimes. So, which other things that are the most important for you to try and first address and how do you keep those on track all the time? Whether it's through communications and like sometimes, you know, based on like what you're trying to change, you need either you need some kind of an intervention, formal or informal. And how do you define when you should do that versus let teams figure things out until they can like get to that point? There's a, there's a bunch of different things that when you when you try and change a culture, it's no one size fits all, right? And in so many ways, you do have to make it personal to teams. Yeah, absolutely, uh, Sean. What are your thoughts on uh, this topic? Yeah, so I mean, I think very specifically something that's like life critical, right? Like if a certain type of bug goes out or a certain type of issue arises, it could, you know, harm somebody. Did I understand that correctly, Todd? That's correct. Yeah, certain, I mean, yeah. certain things could, I mean, they use this, folks use this for, I mean, the good examples are like active shooters or weather events. Yeah. So if you have localities, you know, communicating about hurricanes, you don't want things going wrong. Um, yeah, makes sense. And so, uh, you know, I think a lot about a, a, I guess you could look at it as a cultural problem that I think exists almost every single place I've worked, which is 
how do you, you know, build a strong culture of writing testable software? How do you test? How do you make sure that people are, are doing the, you know, uh, writing the tests and maintaining them and keeping them clean? And in a situation like that, where literally the software that you're writing could harm somebody if it's wrong, or somebody could come to harm through failure of the software, which, you know, to be honest, nightmare scenario for me in my career, personally, I've tried to avoid those type of roles as much as possible because of the stress there. I was, I've been in one position where the software that we wrote did have an impact on people's health and it was quite stressful for me and I did not stick around too long because of it. Um, but I think one of those things to think about there is like, that's actually not just an engineering cultural problem, right? Like that's a problem with a product and marketing and planning. Like everybody's got to be aligned with the idea that these great ideas that we're coming up with, these things that we're shipping and delivering to our customers to help them and keep them safe, they're going to take a lot of time to bake. We can't just say to engineering, like, hey, write tests. You've got to go to product and be like, your product spec need to include acceptance testing criteria and that sort of thing. It needs to include estimations that take into account the level of severity of this testing. Um, and, you know, every software is different. They're not going to need as much testing or as rigorous testing in some degrees. But I think like from that perspective, for uh, a, a culture of testing and testability, that's like an everybody problem. And you can't just look at it from a lens of, hey, engineering, get better at tests. It's, hey, product, learn about why tests matter, help to define tests designers help to make sure that you're writing testable designs, you know, marketing and sales don't overpromise people stuff and don't try to sneak stuff in over the, you know, under the line because, you know, you've got a sale to make or you've got a promise to meet to the market. There's literally a, a human cost to getting some of this stuff out and we have to respect that. And again, it's, uh, that's, that's a thing you can't just myopically look at engineering for that problem. I, I think you're exactly, I think you're exactly right. And it is a, it is a, there is a strong sense of responsibility and in, in what can happen there. I will say what's challenging, what's interesting is that for any problem, someone could point and say, oh, that's life safety. And some of them are, and then, well, then how do you prioritize? And so it ends up being the same situation as if we weren't in a life safety business, because you still have to make prioritization decisions. And well, no, we're not gonna go fast and break things. You know, We're not going down that path, but we still have to, it's like, oh, we can go slow, but if we go slow, we're gonna have less features and less benefits out. So we want to go as quickly as we can, but we want to do it responsibly and we want to do it, you know, with where we can respond quickly if something goes wrong. Um, yeah. Um, Jeff, you had your hands, uh, hand raised there, I believe. Good memory. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to dig in a little bit to the, um, you know, tie, tying it into the reasons. And I, I always think in terms of narrative, I, I love, you know, having a narrative for things. Um, I'm constantly trying to frame things and tell stories, uh, I think that definitely matters here. And I think of um, tying, you know, what you're doing into like your corporate values or the things that you uh, already repeat often and, and uh, being able to tie those things in. And, and for that, I think back to experience a long time ago, which was uh, with Cardinal Health and maybe what made me think of it was talking about the, you know, um, the criticality, et cetera, but, you know, essential to care, I think was the, the, the corporate motto or statement. And everything was always tied to that. And, and, it, and it was great from a standpoint of, of company values, but driving a culture of <clears throat> being deeply committed to healthcare professionals, for instance. Or, you know, in, in my current uh, company where we're trying to, you know, make AI a part of every business and democratize AI, that sort of thing. You can tie things into that as well, but there are also lots of other company values um, such as over communicating, where you can tie in lots of daily practices to that kind of thing. So I think one of the things that really stands out to me with any change like this is that it's lots of repetition, it's lots of modeling, 
and saying it over and over. And so to the extent that that story can be something that everybody recognizes and that you're able to transmit uh, to your managers, you can transmit it to their people and, and be reminded of it, uh, so much the better. And then I guess the one thing <clears throat> on that train of thought is, you know, having an owner for change, <clears throat> you know, which is good in all circumstances, but I think even with a cultural change, you know, <clears throat> maybe it's many owners, maybe it's all of your, you know, your direct reports, or maybe it's all the people of a particular uh, skill type or whatever, but having somebody who is uh, championing that change and who is helping educate on that change, uh, whatever those things are, putting the processes in place that support the change, so on and so forth. So I just think ownership matters there as well. Yeah, I think when you've got a defined message, you know, around your, your culture, um, normally aligned to, to the journey itself or, or the vision, you cannot talk about it too much, if you ask myself. Um, Aduja, you wanted to um, contribute again? Yeah, I think just, a, you know, <clears throat> just a couple of things based on, on what I was hearing. I know, like, Sean, you talked about, well, how do you, you know, we have a culture problem with either not writing testable software or people not wanting to do it. But I think it also goes back to not just like tying it to company values in case, hey, it's a healthcare company, you know, what, what the value is, but also to, you know, what does it mean for me as an individual? So if I'm a developer, hey, if I'm like writing these, maybe when I'm on call, it makes it easier for me to find the problem, right? Um, it's easier for me to debug. I spend less time trying to make a small change because now I can do more features because I had this like test. So I think it's, a, it's always a combination of tying it to the company values and then like tying it to what it means to the individual or the group. Because I think that's where, you know, the company values are great, but then every so often when you're like burnt out, when you are tired, you need something more. And I think that's where like tying it to what it means for you, like personally, like makes a difference. And I think the only other thing I wanted to add, like Jeff, I know you like talked about uh, being able to identify an owner for change. And I would like really say just more of a champion for change. I think you want every person to feel like they own the change and it's not, something that's pushed, but like someone who's, who, who really internalizes it, right? Who's going to evangelize it, who's going to talk about the benefits of it. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of value in that for sure. Yeah, really good. Good points there. Um, we'll go back around to, to Sean. Um, yeah, just because we're talking about kind of like, you know, leadership values and, and company principles and that sort of thing. Um, you know, I love, I love seeing those. And I think that they're good to establish. Uh, but I also think, and I think people are kind of calling this out somewhat, they can be a double-edged sword, right? Like, they're great when they help to guide discussion and they help to guide decision making. And they are at their worst when they are used to basically like shut things down and stop conversation and, and almost use as a cudgel against people for asking certain questions or raising certain problems. Um, so I, it's always great to see companies spell out their values, especially internally to help guide those decisions. But I, I always look at them a little bit, you know, with a bit of a sideways glance, just to make sure like, are these being applied appropriately? Are these helping people or are they used to kind of corral and prevent certain things from happening or being discussed? Um, so yeah, I just, again, I just wanted to add on, like, I think that's a, a thing to always think about when you're looking at those values. Yeah, which um, I think is a very valid point. Thanks for that. So Todd, let's, let's go back around to yourself. This was, of course, your question that you posed. So um, do you want to add anything further on your side? Um, maybe just a, a couple of comments. So first, I think a lot of the perspectives were helpful. I like the tying it also to our domain and the importance of quick response and, and being effective with it. Because I think that's, you know, honestly, when you're in the domain, it, it, it permeates everything you do, but sometimes it 
permeates everything you do and you almost don't see the forest from the trees. So it's, I think, I think that call out is, is helpful and good. And I like the focusing on the, the why and tying to the other, I'll say frameworks that exist in a company. That's really helpful. I think Anuj, you, Anuja, you mentioned about the trade-offs as well. And it's, it, it's um, I think that's something that, hey, good direction to go in, but what are you not gonna do then? And what's gonna change? So a lot of, a lot of, a lot of good, a good feedback. I think something that's also caught us just as well is that, you know, we've got folks in all different places. And so there are different local requirements for things like that. And what's okay in the U.S. may be different in different countries. And so being cognizant of that has also been helpful for us. Um, you know, fortunately, I mean, fortunately, we're in a, I like how our this ties a lot with our company culture today and where we're going, just, you know, better serving customers and better responding to the situation in place. Um, so thanks for all the feedback. It was very helpful. Brilliant. Thanks very much, guys. And um, talking about a global workforce there, Todd, is a nice segue into the next uh, question that Anuja put forward, which was how to build a strong culture across a remote workforce. So do you want to, again, set the scene on this one, please? Yeah, I think, you know, this is this is something I've been been thinking about, obviously, the past couple of years. It's I think it's, you know, like combining that with the like, culture in a high growth phase, you know, back when we were not like remote, you, you saw people, uh, some of that was maybe didn't have to be done as intentionally. Um, and now I think with both a combination of maybe where you're growing really fast and you have a lot of new people coming in to the company and then you are adding on that remote layer on top, how do you make sure that you can maintain that culture um, you know, without slowing everything down, right? I would love thoughts. Um, I know I've, I've like some, but I would love to see like what people have tried, what they think about, like what they've appreciated okay. from what they've done. Yeah, I think that there's kind of two topics there. So we've got, um, you know, the remote element. And then I think you mentioned about um, a company going through a high growth phase, which is a second component in question. Um, so let's let's put them together and discuss them uh, simultaneously. So who would uh, like to go first? Todd, you've got your hand raised there. Yeah, thank, thank you. So I'll, I'll tackle, I think, I'll, I'll tackle part, I think the high growth part first. Um, and I mean, maybe make comments on that and then maybe return back to the, the remote. I think to me, hire for culture is important. And I'm a believer in hiring the athlete as opposed to the right back. And I, you know, there is certain technical skills and a certain technical bar that's needed and should be, should be met. But I think it can be comfortable for engineers to drill down and say, okay, how well do you know this technology or that technology and make decisions there? Where I think if you hire for culture and the people you want to have lead the organization at, at different levels, whether they're indiv senior individual contributors or whether they're managers, directors, et cetera, um, I think that's really important. And I, and I would say even at all levels, being explicit about the culture you want to have so people can make the choice. Do they fit in here or do they not? And, you know, not that you push all those choices onto the person being interviewed, but it should be an open discussion. So to me, I think, you know, culture can be harder to interview for and it can be tricky as well because you want to watch out for unconscious bias and stuff like that. But I think it's important, you know, to say, hey, these are our values and what are your values? Um, so I that's one thing. And then, you know, to me, I think the remote culture I think it's um I think it's a tough thing. I mean, it it just raises the bar. I mean, it's always hard. It's it's it takes effort to build a culture when you're all in the same place, and then when you're distributed or either distributed offices or just fully distributed. I think it's I think it's hard, and I think it requires um, a few different things to make it work. I think about things like intentional get-togethers and you know spending time, making sure there is social time, 
And two, that also helping folks navigate an organization. If you're remote, you feel isolated, you don't know who is who, and it requires more assertiveness from the remote people. So helping them be successful. Um, those are my two initial thoughts. Good question. I think you know there is there is a lot to that, and it's in terms of also well, how much how much more training or documentation or or things that you need to do because when you're coming in like remote, you don't know what you don't know, right? Um, and you don't know how to find it. And so, you know, how much how much more thought that do you need to put in that you might not have to, had to put in as much if you were all in the same workplace? And as you're growing, maybe you're hiring full teams, right? Like you said, you you want to hire for like culture, but you want to be careful of the fact that you are not hiring the same people or you're not hiring more people like yourself. So how do you make sure that you train those teams to 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 like test for those aspects of your culture that are important without just hiring more of themselves? The, I mean, for when I, I to me, there's a couple of things. One, there's I don't like documentation. I mean, I don't like the documentation that's going to be actively used. And so something that I that I think is important with new hires in whatever sense they are, is they're having mentors and buddies and who's going to work with them and show them where the cafeterias or whatever the things are that aren't written down and to be there. And I also think too, of like, oh, if you're hiring, if you're doubling the size of your organization, are you going to create your, and you're going to create five new teams. Are you going to create those five new teams from scratch? Are you going to split your existing five teams into really small 10 teams and then just build from there so that you're injecting culture already into all those teams? And I think there's good reasons to, I mean, I incline toward the latter, but I think there's reasons not to do that as well. Um, so I think it takes thought. Just um, out of interest, Todd, with the philosophy of hire to cult for, for culture, is that something that you've always um, uh, believed in or is that something that you've learned over time? I'd say learned over time. I mean, some when you're starting out, you feel a certain pressure to do things and you don't step back enough to understand, oh, what's driving things. But I mean, Engineers like to know how things work. And I think if you start looking at organizations as systems and then you see, well, culture drives a lot of how systems function. And well, how do you make, like to me, like how do you make decisions? So it, it's something I've learned, maybe painfully at times, like all lessons, but something I've learned, I think. You have to learn the hard way. Um, Jeff, you had your hand raised a while ago. Yeah, I, I think first, I mean, everything that's been said is, is excellent. And so just adding um, a couple of thoughts. The one thing that, um, you know, personally I inherited when I came to Data Robot um, that I didn't put in place, but that I really like is that uh, we have lots of geographic locations and our teams are geographically stratified rather than concentrated. Um, and it puts an additional burden on the team, although quite honestly in pandemic times, it turned out to be just sort of the way we were already working. And so a lot of the remote communication and, and finding the right time for a stand-up uh, across you know re regions, et cetera, um, was already there. But it's it's terrific for making sure that you, you are sharing culture um, across the company in a way. And obviously there are still local differences. And when you have offices, those offices contribute greatly to some of the culture that is there locally. But having the team stratified um, has actually been very helpful for making sure that everybody's part of the same uh, team and, and the same culture in many respects, at least the important ones, as we discussed earlier. Some things uh, should, you know, are more important than others in terms of sameness. Um, the other thing I would say is, is that um, leaders in every location or every location is a full partner um, in the business. 
And so, you know, there's not one location um, where all of the managers reside and one location where all of the people who do, you know, uh, operations reside, et cetera. Like it's uh, full participation, leaders in all locations. And I think that helps as well. Uh, and I guess finally, the, the thing I think of is lots of presence. And it used to be a lot of going, at least, you know, for myself and other leaders, bouncing around to all the different locations and being present. Now it tends to take more of, uh, you know, a lot more one-on-ones or a lot more, um, you know, group sessions, et cetera. Um, but being available and talking and, and uh, you know, uh, not just uh, checking in on the software, but uh, being, you know, fully um, integrated with, with the people. Brilliant. Um, Sean, what, what are your thoughts on these topics? Yeah, so I mean, I've been fortunate enough to be working with remote teams since a few years since before the pandemic. And so we had some practice at it. It was, you know, when the pandemic hit and everybody went remote, it was a little bit of a shock for all the teams who they were physically co-located, but each individual team was kind of like all over the map geographically, kind of what I think like Jeff is describing. Um, I think the number one thing that stands out to me is you shouldn't expect that you're like a positive, healthy remote culture likely doesn't really look a lot like a positive, healthy, physical uh, in-place culture. There's certainly things that are kind of like normalized between both, right? Like good communication habits, like people should be turning off at a healthy time, like taking care of themselves. They should be working collaboratively, but the tools and the ways that they go about it, very, very different, right? And there's just, there's a huge energy difference between five people in a physical room on a whiteboard, all kind of like brainstorming and talking and throwing ideas out versus literally that same concept, but on a digital whiteboard over a Zoom. The 200, you know, milliseconds or whatever it might be delay. The fact that the tools are a little bit different and not tactile and something you're holding in your hand, it's just like the whole experience changes and you've kind of got to be okay with that and figure out and you know I don't have any magic wands to wave about how you figure it out and what you land on but you got to figure out like what works for your team in a distributed sense and what works in a physically located sense and be okay with the fact that those won't be the same things Um, the other thing I would also call out is we talked a lot about like culture fit and hiring for culture 100% agree I will always hire for culture over technical fit any day of the week Um, you can you can teach technical skills, you can train technical capabilities. Um, it's a lot harder to correct communication problems. It's a lot harder to correct attitude problems that are misaligned with what your team wants to see and what the company wants to see. Um, but I often go back to a phrase that a young woman on one of my teams once said, which was, you know, I, the cultural part of our interview was good. I just don't like that we call it culture fit. I'd rather we thought about it as culture add or culture addition. Like this person's going to come in they should fit somehow with what we do right now, but we should also be hiring people who are like pushing us to improve and adding things to our culture and bringing new things to our team that we don't already have. And shout out Val, um, one of the best people I've ever worked with. Uh, she was right. And it was a really great call out. And it, it, I wouldn't like, we didn't overhaul our interview process because of it, because we largely were testing for those things, but we reframed how we spoke about it. We reframed the words that we use and the expectations that we had. Um, And then the only last thing I'll I'll say is because we talked about such geographically distributed teams, a a real eye-opening moment for me was when we started working with teams who were in Canada, who were in Ireland, who were in very different like cultures and certain expectations of like what a, a good, healthy communicative process looks like is very, very different across cultural boundaries. Um, even something as simple as Canada, the United States or Ireland to the United States, which we're all speaking English technically, but we do it very differently and we talk very in very different ways. And there was like a really interesting standout moment where we used to do demos at the, the large company we got acquired into. 
we do these demos and our team, you know, somewhat jovially, we would like hoot and holler, we'd clap for everybody. Like you could be demoing a one line change that literally fixed the world's smallest bug that nobody actually cared about. We'd be giving you like a roaring standing ovation just so you felt good about your, you know, the thing that you were demoing and the participation you had that week. And then the teams in Ireland and Canada would watch us and be like, what is wrong with it? Like, why are they, what are they doing? They're just like screaming at one another. It's like, no, we're like, we're happy. We're cheering, we're supporting. And they're like, well, you don't expect us to do that, do you? It's like, no, do, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, way you want to show support for people is how you should do it. This is just how we choose to do it because, you know, we find it fun and engaging and interesting. So it's a thing to sort of recognize there, take away is like what's good for your culture where you're physically located is probably not the same as what's good for somebody else's culture in some other, you know, physical geography um, than the United States. Brilliant. Thanks for that. And uh, another shout out to Val. I, I think that's a great perspective. To, to have. Um, let's loop back around to Anuja who put put these questions forward. Yeah, I was just going to say I love those uh, the two points that you made, uh, the one that had to do with the culture ad because that is that is like such an important part. It's really, you know, again, going back to identify what is really important that you want to make sure people are bringing in versus, hey, you know, everything else is kind of different, but, but not bad, right? And and that's the culture ad. But also, like you said, you know, in the in the like remote world, whether they are like geographically co-located teams or they're truly like remote teams that are, you know, like one person in each location, I think it's both a combination of making sure people have the tools that they would need to set, so that they can have that collaborative work, right? Whether it's the digital whiteboards or it's something else, so that they're not missing out, so that people who are remote don't feel different or, you know, um, don't feel like they're stepchildren compared to the people who are in um, one location where they have the tools and the, and the others don't, right? So so really, I think in like so many ways, you have to be a lot more intentional than yeah. I think uh, than I think you had to be in the past. Not that you didn't have to be intentional. It just it kind of you it, you have to up your game, so to speak. Yep, totally agree. Absolutely. Um, has anybody got any other points they'd like to to raise on these these topics before we move on? I just add on the on the um, on the remote culture that I think it's important to find a way to get feedback, and because feedback's different remotely than when you're all in the same place, and so finding to make sure you're hearing how things are really perceived and what's really going on. Because I love that the other that Ireland told told you folks, Sean, that you were out of control. But not everyone speaks up and says that. <laughs> so. I also think you know uh, like feedback is not given the same way in either different geographical locations. There's there is a like culture slant to it. Some people are you know more upfront about it. Others are not. And so really meeting people where they are in in how they how they communicate, how they you know how they want to work is becomes even more important. Yeah, similar to when we started off the conversation around the acquisitions. I think another theme that's uh, rearing its head is, is the communication piece. Um, uh, Sean, over to you. Yeah, so actually I was going to say, so the, the question that I had posed, which was I think largely another form of how do you affect changing culture and how do you manage clashing cultures? Um, I actually think we've probably broached a lot of that topic already and we're on a, a subject that I care very deeply about, which is feedback. And so if you know if people are comfortable with that, I'd love to continue the conversation about feedback and feedback-driven cultures as opposed to the sort of like change management uh, question that I originally asked. If that's okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, do you want to just add a little bit more color to the feedback yeah. piece, and then we can go around the room? Yeah. So uh, I think there was an excellent call out a second ago about how important feedback is and how feedback is different between cultures and 
some cultures are are very very direct and you know i think americans largely are known for maybe compliment sandwiches and you know sprinkling a little bit of sugar on everything uh for various reasons um whereas other cultures they just don't have that as a norm and so sometimes you might think oh somebody's being very direct to the rude when they're thinking like no i'm actually being very very polite and very you know caring about you very deeply by offering you this feedback um so I thought, I thought that was a really great call out because I've definitely run into that and I've seen that kind of create tension on teams when people are used to certain feedback mechanisms and then they're confronted with what somebody else thinks is like, this is the right way to give feedback, but really it's the right way to give feedback to folks who come from a similar background or come from a similar set of cultural norms as they do. Um, but largely, I think the number one thing that I'm most concerned with on my teams a lot of days is like, are people giving each other feedback? You know, and not just critical feedback, like, hey, where you could improve, but also, hey, great, that was a great PR. Like, hey, this line of code, like I learned something from that. Um, you know, hey, that other day when you spoke up in a meeting, like, you know, you had my back, like, thank you. Like, thanks for speaking up. I was kind of nervous, et cetera. Giving people positive and, you know, critical feedback is such an important part of making sure your team is growing. And I find that for whatever reason, like it's one of the hardest hurdles to get over for a lot of people. They don't want to hurt feelings. They don't want to overstep. They're not sure if the things that they're seeing are correct. And it's just like, I, I'd love to hear about ways that folks in this group have like affected that change uh, as much as possible. Likewise. So um, Anuja, what uh, would be your thoughts? I think, you know, like something you said really like resonated with me, which is like people are not comfortable giving feedback, good or bad sometimes, right? I mean, I've I've been in like companies where we have a, a feedback like process or we, you know, like try to encourage people and it just is zip, right? Silence, crickets, no one wants to say anything. And I think in in like so many ways, I think you have to address it through a combination of things, right? One, I think you have to lead by example. Um, are they seeing you give feedback, both good and bad to people, right? Yeah. But 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 are they seeing you give the, you know, not so positive feedback in a constructive way, you know, so, so you can kind of, so they see you like trying to address the problem as opposed to make it personal to someone, right? Do they see you um, actually giving that positive feedback to people? But I also say, um, I've also in like some cases, you know, it's like, it's like a habit, right? You have to first force it for a certain amount of time before it becomes a habit. And in like some cases, I've also like resorted to either gamifying it, Right, kind of saying, okay, well, you know, we're going to take all the like feedback that like people got, and then we'll do a raffle and pick one person out of all the people who gave feedback. So like sometimes, you know, until it becomes a habit, you like maybe like need to find that like combination of leading by example, but then like finding more like creative ways to give to have people give the feedback, whether we do it, you know, either we would like do it during a retro and have people actually give feedback there, or if you had a Slack channel where people could give feedback, or, and then we would share that feedback in a, in a company meeting or in all hands, you know, pick the top five most received feedback. So in like some ways, find, finding that combination of gamifying something so that there's incentive to give feedback beyond just that first thing. I, I think like once it becomes a habit, it becomes more like natural for people as opposed to like starting out raw. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Jeff, what, what would be your thoughts in terms of feedback? Yeah, this has been a, a, an area that I, I've, uh, you know, really tried to to enhance in Data Robot and, and going to the point of teaching it uh, to all of the team leaders and managers and so forth and encouraging certain uh, numbers of books, et cetera, because I, I do think it's, it's really important. And, you know, I think positive uh, it's great to bring that up, and I think it should outweigh uh, negative, you know, uh, by a large margin. It has to be part of uh, of the culture. 
rather than the sandwich at the time that you're telling it, you know, um, building up a trust bank and a, and a relationship that allows for it to be safe uh, with, with, you know, the critical feedback. And, and I think this is just a huge safety thing in the culture in terms of what are you doing to make sure that it's clear that critical feedback is not the end of the world, um, that in fact it's necessary and uh, fruitful for the team. Um, and so that is a modeling thing. It's also being, I think, uh, personally uh, loud with your failures and your shortcomings um, as a leader and, and making sure that that's part of it. Um, obviously, it, giving uh, the direct and open feedback, you know, if things are turning south uh, publicly in any way and, and, and short circuiting those things. And I think, too, you know, we as leaders tend to get the uh, problem uh, survivorship bias, which, you know, if it got to you, it's because somebody else couldn't solve it. And I get, uh, you know, one of the things that made me want to to really tackle this in, in my current role is I was too many things where it was a problem, but the person bringing the problem hadn't even tried to solve it. Right. Like, uh they were not comfortable with the feedback. And, and so it became a lot of returning those things and not being willing to uh, be the person who goes and solves all the critical feedback that's saying that, oh, well, I haven't told them that. Oh, well, okay, let's talk about why you haven't talked to them about this. You know, is this, this seems like something you could handle yourself. And so um, I think in, ter in terms of really trying to enhance the, that, uh, that kind of thing is also, um, fairly effective and, and not being for those things to go unsaid, uh, but to say this is something that we as a team uh, should be willing to do. Thanks for that, Jeff. Um, Todd, what are your thoughts on the feedback topic? So a, a couple, one in the is with the direction of the conversation is going today, for me, an important aspect is that the feedback just be natural, natural and easy. I mean, some feedback, you need to make it a thing, um, but often what we're talking about here is just open discussion and just making it natural and a thing so it isn't nat natural and so it, it doesn't become a thing. Um, and so that's one, but then a second, which I, I think is is important and I think can have really good carry on effects is is having, I'll say, um, um, it's a, I, I think I'm phrasing it, a not phrasing it perfectly, but I'll say a learning organization. And by that, I mean like, oh, you released something, how well did it do? What went wrong, what went right? And so you're not talking about the individuals, you're talking about the product, you're talking about the deliverable, you're talking about now, it does derive back to the actions different individuals take. And so there is that there, but to me, having that be a part of the culture where no, we're, we're not looking to deliver X, we're looking to deliver X and have X be successful and success means this. So how did we do, how did we get there? Or it could be deliver X and learn something so we could make a further decision. And so to me, when that happens, it becomes much that helps and that creates a positive feedback loop too. Absolutely. Um, let's uh, let's go to Anuja and then we'll kind of go back around the room to, to Sean um, as he flagged this as a topic and then we'll move on to the final question for today. I actually just uh, lowered my hand because Todd stole my line, right? I was going to actually say, well, it's it's all about like retros, right? Making sure you can do a retrospective on a release on on a hotfix that went out. But also, you know, in general, I've also kind of like pinged like teams and said, um, let's like talk about like what do you think about how we do QA? How, what do you think about how we're doing there? Like what do you think we do well? What do you think we can improve? And and also as a leader, asking for feedback yourself, seeing seeing people, you know see you asking feedback and then like receiving it well as opposed to just being the one who's giving it well they do say great minds think alike don't they guys so um back around to you sean 
Yeah, Sorry, right. I was just going to say that they also say fools seldom differ. So <laughs> <laughs> I think there's truth to both. Um, yeah, there's a lot of great points brought up um, uh, all around here. Uh, Jeff, you had a, a comment that just made me remember a joke that somebody told me once, which is, you know, management is effectively asking two people if they've talked to each other yet over and over and over again until the problem solves itself. Um, that's right. <laughs> yep. um, yeah, I'm a huge, I'm a huge fan of um, the retro idea on projects. Absolutely, like everything, every major or even minor project we ship should have some type of retrospective to understand what went well, what didn't go well. Which there's always going to be something, and that's okay. Like it's normal and expected. Um, but I'm also a big fan of making sure that there's like periodic points in time where peers are offering feedback to each other, and you know this can be very anxiety-inducing for folks. Um, and I'm, I'm a big believer that that process should be anonymous. Um, you know, peers should be able to leave anonymous feedback in a structured way designed to help each other grow. And, you know, the, the guidance is always like, don't leave feedback that you wouldn't say to somebody's face. But the point isn't who's leaving the feedback. The point is, what is what could you be spending your time dollars on to improve as a team member? And like the feedback is coming directly from the people who work with you closest. Uh, you know, as your manager, I believe my feedback from you should never be anonymous. You should always know exactly what my feedback is, but from your peers, it's really important to make sure that they have a channel to offer you this feedback, but that doesn't shine the spotlight on them for doing it. So I'm a, I'm a big, huge proponent of, of anonymous feedback and doing it you know, semi-regularly, once or twice a year, um, and also marrying that process to people's growth and development plans. So if somebody's trying to get to that next promotion, if they're trying to get to that next opportunity, saying like, hey, here's what your peers are asking out of you to grow. I, as your manager, I, I see certain things, but I definitely don't see everything but here's what I'm getting from your peers. And so like, if your peers are ready to recognize you at that level, then I'm much more likely to recognize you at that level um, myself. And then finally, every time I have a one-on-one -on -one with somebody, I end up the exact same way, which is I ask them, is there anything I can do for you? Start doing, stop doing, or change. And you know, nine times out of 10, the answer is no, everything's fine. But every now and then you get some good, really critical feedback. And you know, you try to set the expectation that, hey, come to me as soon as there's a problem. Like when you need me, I'm always here for you. This is your, there's no excuse not to tell me time if there's something I could be doing for you or looking into you for you, into for you or, or whatever like that. So yeah, a lot of great points all around. Yeah, I'm a big fan of stop, start, continue. Um, Anuja, finally, um, yourself before we move on. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. Um, I know you said uh, anonymous feedback and um, I'm not sure if I'm a fan of it or I hate it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Here's why, right? Um, I think that there is value in anonymous feedback in the sense, you know, you can get a much uh, broader feedback for someone as opposed to just the manager. But I would love to get to a point where people don't feel like their feedback needs to be anonymous, where they yes. can give both good and fe bad feedback without having to hide behind anonymity, which is why, you know, to me, I kind of like see it as well. If you if you don't feel feel comfortable giving direct feedback yet, fine, let's make it anonymous so mm -hmm. the person gets feedback. But let's also, as a team, like talk about what makes us want it to be anonymous, right? Yeah. Um, because like sometimes we hide behind anonymity and, and it, I, that says to me that we don't feel comfortable giving feedback directly. Um, I think those are I think those are really fair points. And I think when I say that I have a counterpoint, not that I disagree with what you're saying, the goal should be to get to a place where the team feels comfortable delivering feedback directly face-to-face, -face, right. ever present, like all the time. I think where I always think that anonymous feedback is a great starting point and something to continue with is to be, you know, to be honest, it's very easy for somebody to receive a piece of feedback appear as though they've taken it well, but in subtle and biased ways begin to retaliate. Um, you know, uh, I'm sure that, you know, women and, and non-white folks experience this a lot, but it, it could really hit anybody. Um, there's a lot of subtle ways in which our biases and our perceptions kind of creep in when somebody delivers us feedback that we just weren't ready to hear. And so I, I worry about that kind of thing a lot because 
you know, everybody comes to do their best work and, you know, nobody outwardly is showing up to try and, um, you know, be negative towards others. But we're human beings with emotions that are complicated and hard to manage. Right. And I, I, I think that it's a good starting place. But you're right in that you want to get to a point where your team's not worried about delivering that feedback. Right. That's why my like, love it and hate it comes from, you know, it's like... Yeah. Um... It's like the the like reality versus where I would love for us to be. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Brilliant. Thanks for that, guys. So, uh, moving on to the the final topic for today, which was put forward by Sean. Um, so you were asking how to ensure that the culture you want isn't at odds with the broader organization, and what steps can you take as a leader to help shape it both ways? So again, can you please add some context? Yeah, um, I think I think largely the, the question is all around, you know, when you're in a large org that's kind of uh, growing and changing rapidly, you've got folks who have been there for a, a long time, who've been through a lot of these changes and maybe, you know, in some cases are a little bit burned out by them, or at least have been through so many changes that it's begins to feel routine or a little bit rote. And just curious for the folks who have been on this call, like, how do you work with those folks who there's a certain culture throughout the history of the company that they really loved or that attracted them initially. But that's not the culture anymore. And there's probably good reasons for that, right? Like a 30-person company can't operate like a 300-person company, can't operate like a 3,000-person company. Um, but how do you work with those folks who, you know, you want to keep them around, you want to keep them happy and engaged, but this isn't necessarily, you know, quote, unquote, what they signed up for? Good question. Um, who would like to take, uh, take this one initially? Um, I think there was a tie in hands going up, but I'll go with Jeff. <laughs> Okay, we can go with Todd if, if he wants. Um, yeah, it just it, it makes me think of one of the things that we actually uh, did change at Data Robot, um, and yet uh, your your point about the sort of the the old timers, if you will, um, uh, you know, really came out, which is that we had a um, sort of cultural value of working super hard and those those of us who have been around a long time sort of understood it and we didn't take offense to it but over time as we grew and hired and the communication of what that meant and so forth um was left a lot to people's uh, interpretations including potentially from leaders interpreting it in the way and it was just problematic like what do you mean do you mean i shouldn't have a family you mean i you know i should be at work 12 hours a day what does work super hard mean um, and everybody wanted it to be defined, and that's not wrong, um, you know, but it worked really well on a small team, uh, small enough team, uh, where where it was understood what it meant. And I think one of the things from that relative to your question of, you know, how do you how do you work that through with those that felt like it was good? Like, we felt good about working hard. We felt like we really contributed and, and it was a great thing to have as a cultural value was to basically say, yeah, that's great, but it's also really hard to understand this. And, and to again, go back to that narrative and the storytelling, this is, you know, this doesn't change how we want you to commit yourself and we're not giving up on um, the idea that people uh, will work to make this great software, but it's not easy to understand what this means and it's confusing and it's actually causing problems um, with other people in the organization. And so, you know, we need to focus on uh, other aspects of, of our culture. And so again, just sort of taking it through and not throwing out what the people in the past valued, but tying it into a different story about the way we were going to continue to work going forward and what it meant to um, continue to grow the organization, um, that there was sort of a greater a greater good 
than just hanging on to a, a problematic piece of culture. Todd, um, your thoughts? Yeah, so I mean, I think a bit similar to Jeff, I think, and to me, I think we answered it some of it with the feedback discussion in the sense that it's feedback, but it's also, I mean, there's a, to me, when I look at employees, you know, there some of the challenges that can arise is people may not be as satisfied with the job they're in as they were two years ago. And that shows up in different ways. And, you know, we all have momentum. And so some people take some time or they don't deal with that. So I think for me, having the frank but supportive discussion with folks, because it's everyone's better when someone's happy in the job. The company's better, the person's better, everyone around them's better. And the team, you know, the team is better. And so to me, it's, you know, I, I like how you phrased it, Jeff, where no, it's it's not as if from the past is bad. It's like, oh, things are a lot of strengths there. We, here's what we need today. And so to me, it's a, a supportive conversation, but also a, a, a clear conversation, you know, something that like a leader would have that, hey, this is where we're going. This is where you seem to be. How are you doing? Does this work for you? Um, yeah. Yep, absolutely. Um, Anuja, what are your thoughts? I think it was, you know, <clears throat> I agree with like, what we're saying here. Like sometimes uh, you are, like, people change, right? Uh, what people want in their lives change. Um, sometimes you can align it with what the company's culture is it. Unfortunately, sometimes you can't because maybe things change in, in what they're looking for, their life change or something else change. And, you know, you have to be able to, at that point, be be both both honest, but also be supportive, right? Like sometimes, unfortunately, the best thing for someone is to find that role in a different part of the company, a different team, something else, because that that best aligns with what they're doing, right? And I feel like having that that like safety, that culture of trust where they can come to you and talk about it and you can look to see where, you know, where you have alignment and where where you can help address their problems, but sometimes help them if you can't. I think they're, they're like both equally important. Sean, come on, uh, looping back around to yourself, what uh, would you like to add? Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think everybody here had a lot of great points. I really appreciate the context and I, I love, you know, sort of the honesty around, you know, at the end of the day, it's okay to, to understand like, hey, maybe this isn't the culture that I, I want to be in, or maybe there's a better place for me either elsewhere in the company or at another company itself. And just understanding like, hey, that's normal and that that's okay. And there's, you know, no hard feelings as long as we're all kind of adults about it. And, and the expectations are set and it's just sort of more of a transactional thing than it is a personal thing. Yeah. And that, and that obviously would free up a, a spot for somebody where there's hopefully a stronger alignment between them and, and the offering that's on the table. Um, so... Fantastic. Well, listen, look, um, what I like to do at the end of each podcast is just go around and ask people for a key takeaway from the conversation. So uh, ladies first, Anuja, what would you uh, like to or be taking from today? Sure. Put me on the hot spot first. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I think to me, if if I had to like, take away like one phrase and I would, you know, ask you to like thank your a team member, Sean, is the whole like, culture ad. And I think that applies to a lot of our discussion here, whether it's the the acquisitions, the mergers, whether it's, you know, a subculture, team culture, just hiring for culture, really, like really understanding the value and kind of differentiating between the must-haves of your like culture plus what are the additionals or the peripherals or the culture ads that, and, and you know, evaluating them as are those good or are they just, just different or, or bad for you, you come, or I think to me, that's the big takeaway. Well, that's a hat trick of shout outs for Val. So hopefully she's going to listen to this podcast, Sean. Um, she better. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, Todd, uh, how about yourself? So I love that one, but I got to add a different one then. So um, for me, I think 
um, conclusion I have from here is that leadership is intentional and that there's a lot as leaders we need to be doing. And so however we can support other leaders, et cetera, is, is good and the right thing to do. Um, and I'll just add getting that feedback loop so we see how we're doing, like the whole, you know, viewing it as a system, I think is really important. So leadership is intentional. Absolutely. Thanks, Todd. Um, Sean, over to you. Yeah, I mean, I think if there's a, a key takeaway I'd like to sort of uh, bring up, I would uh, return the favor to Anuja, which is, you know, her kind of counterpoint towards anonymous feedback is a good place to start, but is it where you want to end up? Is there, uh, you know, are there other processes that you need to put in place to encourage people to give face-to-face -face feedback and, and to not just rely on that mechanism? I think it's a great reminder to me and to everybody, really, that that's the, the, the benchmark you want to shoot for is a team that's constantly giving feedback and not, you know, worried about how it'll be perceived. Um, so I think to me, that's, that's probably the number one takeaway for me to continue to think about. Brilliant. And finally, uh, what about yourself, Jeff? Yeah, well, certainly it underscored um, that uh, communication is is either the hardest or the most important thing in software development. Um, something, uh, you know, Sean brought up and, and I've uh, said for, for many years, but uh, Taking that one aside, I think the it's a bit of what Todd said in terms of, you know, there, there's a lot of work to do, but, you know, the thing that really stood out to me is across all the topics, the importance of engagement and transparency. Um, you know, a lot of this is, is about modeling, talking, sharing, um, and providing the environment in which all of these culture uh, changes and cultural additions and everything else can actually take place. So. Um, that really stands out to me. Awesome. Well, thanks very much, guys. Let's uh, let's leave the conversation there. Um, this has been the Evolution Exchange USA podcast. I would like to take this opportunity to thank Anuja, Sean, Todd, Jeff. Thanks very much, guys, for providing your insights into the topic, and thank you for listening.